Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Delighting in Khuram Hussain's consistently sparkling prose is reason enough to read his new book, Islam as Critique. Sayyid Ahmad Khan and the Challenge of Modernity. But there is much more to this splendid book, framed around the profoundly consequential, conceptual and political question of can Muslims serve not as friends or foes, but as critics of Western modernity. Hussain addresses this question through a close and energetic reading of key selections from the scholarly corpus of the hugely influential yet often misunderstood modern South Asian Muslim scholar Sayyid Ahmad Khan. By putting Khan in contrapuntal conversation with a range of Western philosophers including Reinhold Niebuhr, Hannah Arendt and Alistair McIntyre, Hussain explores ways in which Sayyid Ahmad Khan's thought on profound questions of moral obligation, knowledge, jihad, and time, disrupts a politics of either-or, whereby Muslim actors are invariably grinded in the sledgehammer of modern Western commensurability to emerge as either friends or as enemies. This provocative and thoughtful book will animate the interest of a range of scholars in Islamic studies, South Asian studies, politics, philosophy, and post-colonial thought. It will also work as a great text to teach in courses on these and many other topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Khuram Hussain. Hello, Khuram. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Khuram, for coming on the New Books Network, on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, I, I, as we were just talking before we started recording, uh, such an incredible uh, book, which um, really uh, the thing that is quite remarkable is that it makes an intervention in multiple fields simultaneously. Scholars of Islam will have much to learn from us, scholars of South Asian history and South Asian Islam, but largely, you know, uh, questions of philosophy, post-colonial thought. Right. There's a lot of intersecting threads and that we'll try to capture here. But before we get uh, specifically to the book, we have a tradition on the New Books Network Forum that our first question is uh, uh, biographical. Could you share a bit with our listeners um, the story of how you became a scholar of uh, Islam, philosophy, and so on? And then how did you get to write this particular book? Maybe share your journey a bit before we get to the book itself. Great. I mean, I'm being from Pakistan. You know, my, my parents never thought I'd become this kind of doctor. You know, they, they always wanted me to be 
like an engineer and or, or a doctor, one of those things, right? A professional degree and stuff. Uh, and initially, I had come to college to get a degree, like a pre-engineering degree in Bowdoin, Bowdoin College and then go to Caltech because it, it was a program, uh, you know, at Bowdoin where you went to Caltech to become an engineer. But then I got derailed on the way by my roommate, who was um, a philosophy and religion person. And then I started taking classes and then, you know, the rest was history. Um, yeah, so my, I'm not, you know, trained as an Islamicist. Uh, I think that might come through quite clearly in the book as well. My training has mostly been in, in philosophy, philosophy of religion and in philosophy as such, Western philosophy for the most part. So this book basically came about when I tried to read uh, uh, Islamic writers like Sayyid Ahmed Khan as if I was reading Western philosophy. Do you see what I'm saying? So like in, instead of sort of thinking about them in provincial terms as Islamic scholars or Islamic theologians or Islamic or South Asianists, right? I tried to, th- I tried to imagine these writers in much the same way that I would read a Hegel or a Kant or a Nietzsche or something, right? So the book is really about like do, taking that particular a way of thinking about these these thinkers seriously, right? Like not try to provincialize them, but read them the way I would read anything else, right? Any any other sort of uh, piece of Western philosophy or theology. Terrific. Let's perhaps begin with the with the title, which also serves as perhaps the major argument of the book, right. Islam Islam as critique. Uh, tell us a bit uh, to our listeners. Uh, uh, what you mean by that, and how does it connect to the central sort of point that you that you that you make in the book? That phrase, Islam as critique. Well, I think critique to me, like you know, when we think about critical uh, critical theory or critique as such, is, is is sort of an intervention, right? Like when you when you take a particular point of view, a particular philosophy, as 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 being critical of of, of a particular understanding of the world, a particular ontology, epistemology. What you're saying is that that there's a kind of internality to that thing, right? Like, I think I'm, I'm referencing here Michael Walter's idea of, like, the internal critic versus external critic, right? So to think of Islam as critique is to internalize Islam within modernity, right? To say Islam is not something outside of modernity that modernity happens to, right? Islam is a particular critical take, you know, in the exposition of, of, of modernity as such, right? So it's, it's sort of, it's, it, it's, it's a way of signaling that I'm trying to internalize Islam as a way of looking at the world, right? As a critical way of looking at the world, which is absolutely essential to the exposition of modernity as such. And, um, but, but the other key point that you, of course, make, and I, you know, perhaps you could speak a bit more about this, is this critical point you make about looking at Muslims neither as a friend or foe, but as, but as critics. Uh, tell us a bit about what, what you mean there and why is that so central? What, why is that so important? to what you try to do in this book? I think a lot of my, like, when I started looking at Islam, modern Islam especially, or writings about modern Islam, uh, especially in the contemporary media and, and also in the writings of people as well, like, I kept seeing this sort of, like, this either-or kind of phenomena, like, either you are a friend or you're a, or you're an enemy, right? Either you are, you know, commensurable with Western modernity or you're completely rejecting it, right? Like, so this is sort of the... Um, this binary way in which Muslims are either sort of accepted as friends, meaning like they are just like us, like Muslims are just like them. Muslims are people too, that kind of reading, right? The Islamophilia almost. Or like Muslims are sort of, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, or, or, or just rejecting modernity. So the point was that 
when I say critic, like I'm not using critic in a negative sense, right? I'm not saying critic in the sense uh, uh, of like, you know, like a rejection, but crit- criticism as a way of, of being in the world with other people, right? Like if, if I, and for example, like, the way we are talking right now, right? Like this is a this is um, this is a, a particular example of critical debate, right? Like you say something, I say something back. Then you say something, I say something back, and then we both sort of grow from that experience of talking to each other, right? So I think my the, the primary sort of motivation for writing the book is that I find too little of that happening with uh, uh, with Muslim thinkers in the global public mainstream, right? Like including academia, but mostly in, in sort of the way we talk about. We do hear about Muslims, like uh, a very good example would be something like Reza Aslan, right? Who's so anodyne, right? Like he's so completely anodyne. Everything that he writes about is is basically just anodyne liberal, uh, you know, masquerading as a Muslim, right? And to me, that seems like almost as bad as like the sort of rejectionist fundamentalists, right? Who basically say everything that's Western, everything that's modern is bad. And if you make the argument that a figure who is really useful, of course, I mean, that's one of the key uh, interventions of the book that tries that who disrupts this kind of a commensurability paradigm right. is, of course, uh, this 19th century scholar, uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan. Right. Uh, so tell us a bit to our listeners, um, maybe those who might be a bit unfamiliar with the South Asian context, maybe if you could situate a bit about your uh, take on Sayyid Ahmad Khan. Um, versus the earlier scholarship, but also why is he so useful for your purposes? Why is he so uh, uh, apt as an example of a scholar uh, who uh, disrupts this uh, commensurability uh, or this either-or right. paradigm? Well, I think in many ways, like I think one of the one of the points of this book and, and my other work is that in many ways the contemporary moment is not so different, right? from its 19th century antecedents, right? In many ways, a lot of the debates we're having were, were already happening in the 19th century. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, in many ways, uh, Sayyid Ahmed Khan's um, time period, especially after the, the mutiny in, in 1857, when the British colonial authorities were challenged by, you know, sporadic sort of uh, warfare, um, you know, attempts to overthrow the, the imperial company rule at the time, um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan's response to that particular situation was was precisely to not play the game of like either pledge loyalty to the crown or pledge loyalty to Islam, right? Like his point was, well, how do we make this particular moment in South Asia at the time a moment in which we can sort of create something new, right? And to fully understand the novelty of the moment through an exposition of a new kind of Islam, like a new Ilm al-Kalam, as he, as he talks, a new, a new sort of theological take. Um, and I think we need that kind of sort of attitude in, in, in modern, uh, like th- that particular way of thinking about the world, I feel like is, is in short supply. Um, and it's not just in short supply, like philosophically, right? I think there, there's lots of great philosophical works being done, but, but normatively and, you know, in a, in, in a sense of like, like, how do we deal with this particular moment without falling into these, this either-or trap? So that's why I find him very useful is because he did not, you know, even though, like, that time period would have, uh, you know, been quite, you know, it would have been quite easy for him to fall into that trap, um, as many of his co-religionists and, uh, did at the time, but he didn't. And one of the key... Um 
categories that you that you uh, present in terms of uh, his work is this idea of harmonization or uh, tadbiya, as you as, right. as you as you uh, put it. Uh, tell us a bit about what that entails for Sayyid Ahmad Khan. W- what does that mean, the harmonization? Of well, the, well the, the, the actual concept of is actually earlier than him. It was Shah Waliullah, who's uh, another reformer from the 18th century. Uh, he came up with this idea of tadbiya as a way of harmonizing all the different schools of Islamic thought and jurisprudence, and also harmonizing between the Sufi way and the ulama ulama way, and even you know even broader like you know harmonizing between Shias and Sunni. So, so it was this very panoramic type of uh, concept that uh, Shah Waliullah came up with, you know, and he as he tried to sort of you know unify all the different kinds of uh, quote unquote Islam in South Asia at the time into a single sort of coherent narrative, right? Um, and, you know, so Tatbiya as a, as, a, as a kind of like uh, operationalized version of uh, Tawheed, which means sort of obviously, you know, unity, unicity of God, right? So Tatbiya sort of as the, as the human social cultural equivalent of the ontological concept of Tawheed. Now, Sayyidina Khan means much the same by it, right? He's, he's using the, the term in a similar way to Shawaliullah, but in a different context, right? He's trying to harmonize, in his understanding, he's trying to harmonize all the different aspects of human life, right? Like, for example, like he's trying to say that we cannot think about human life as being divided up into 15, 16 different categories, right? Like we can't think of it as being separate, like secular and state versus religion, versus dunya, versus, you know, so all of these sort of different disparate sort of fragmented aspects of Muslim identity and Muslim life at the time. He's saying we need to kind of bring it all together into a single coherent narrative, right? Like turn it into like a, so so think of it this way, like it's not so much that it's trying, Tadbiya refers to like making everything the same or everything uh, similar, but it's like the coherence of a language, for example, right? When we're talking right now, there's a kind of coherence harmonize coherence to language, right? Like the sentences have a certain kind of grammar to them. They have a certain vocabulary to them, right? What Sayyidina Madan was, was noticing in late 19th century India was that Islam as a language for understanding yourself and the world had become incoherent, right? And it had become incoherent because parts of it had just fragmented and become obsolete and obscure. So he was trying to create a new language, right? Like a new way of thinking about the world in 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 and and the word the he used the concept he used to define and and put together and sort of construct this new language was tatbiya. Right. So the the problem being that Muslims were no longer being able to talk coherently about the world in a way that kind of presented itself to them as a unified, you know, like a like a, some kind of coherent entity. You've already touched on this, but before we get to the specific themes of Sayyid Ahmad Khan that you engage, I just wanted you to say a bit about this um, um, sort of way in which you've organized the book and the the kind of intervention that you launch, in that you put Sayyid Ahmad Khan in what you call a, a contrapuntal conversation with major uh, Western philosophers and theorists, uh, especially Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, Leiber, and Alastair McIntyre. Right. And, and you, you make a very interesting point that, uh, you know, you, you're trying to rethink the idea of contextualizing these Muslim thinkers in their particular right. time period. Tell us, tell, tell our listeners a bit about that argument. Why uh, was this contrapuntal conversation important to you? And uh, how are you trying to sort of go beyond this idea of contextualizing Muslim thinkers in their own places and time periods and so on? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, I, I'm not against contextualization. I mean, I think, you know, part of the cultural turn that happened in the 70s and 80s and in academia in general was, was I think, very necessary 
to try and put things in context and not always use sort of Western models to describe everything, right? I mean, that was the problem back in the day, right? Like we had a sort of an overwhelming kind of uh, gaze of the West sort of describing the world in Western terms. So, so contextualizing, you know, like post-colonial studies and like cultural studies, right? To, 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 to un- try and understand human phenomena in context is, a, is generally a good thing, right? Like that's a, it's a corrective to failed sort of universalisms of the past. But at the same time, I feel that there is a kind of loss attendant to over-contextualization, right? Because when you over-contextualize somebody, like Sayyidimad Khan, you basically say that he has nothing to say that is relevant to the human condition as such, right? Like I, as a humanist, and I would describe myself as a humanist, I'm really interested in the human dimensions of all people, right? Like of all events, of all phenomena, no matter where they happen, right? So by... But what I mean by decontextualizing Sayyidimad Khan is not, not to say like, hey, he's not a South Asian, 19th century South Asian Muslim reformer, right? Like that's, that's context, right? But what is his relevance to the human condition as such, right? Like what can we as human beings learn from him, right? And that I think about as reading, like, you know, reading him out of context, uh, not so much out of context in the sense of, of like just completely erasing his particularity, but to engage with him as we engage with a lot of Western philosophers, right? Like we engage with them without this constant interrogation of their biographies, right? I mean, you, you can talk to, and, and you know, like you can talk to people who've been steeped in Western philosophy and they wouldn't know a damn thing about Kant or, or Hegel and their biography or where they were from or what they were doing or like what were their particular religious affiliations and all that stuff, right? And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to know that stuff, but what I'm saying is that it's sometimes it's not. Sometimes you can engage with these people purely on the terms of their ideas, right? I know that's not very fashionable, especially in, you know in our present moment. But sometimes you can just look at the ideas and just you know and stay with that. But that's where one of the reasons I began with uh, the book with um, Amadi Najat, right? Like saying, listen, I mean, I understand you know there's a lot of sort of problematic aspects to Amadi Najat. But sometimes it is important to just read, you know, what is written. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Like just to read what is written and engage with that at a human level. So that's that was the the, the approach. And then in terms of the contrapuntal, that I think pretty much what I've already said, right? Like I want to read Sayyidim Khan with the other people that I read. Much like I read Hannah Arendt with Nietzsche or Hegel, right? I want to read him into the same conversation. Right. And I want to be able to sort of just make that conversation available to other people. Right. Like other people can then look at this particular book and say, hey, listen, it's not that complicated or weird to read Sayyidimad Khan next to Reinhold Niebuhr. Right. Like it just as it's not weird to read Reinhold Niebuhr next to Kant. Right. They're, they're just as far removed in many ways, you know, from each other geographically and historically and, you know, temperament wise. Right. Like so there's nothing there's nothing like peculiarly peculiar about Sayyidimad Khan or Muslim thinkers, right? They're all, we're all living in a modern world that is hyper-connected, right? Maybe back a thousand years ago, there were, there might've been like sort of, you know, zones of exclusive particularity, right? We don't have those zones anymore. We certainly haven't had them for the last 200 years, right? Uh, so I think we, we need to begin to sort of, sort of begin to pull these people out of their context, you know, um, in, in, a, in a way to humanize the discourse around. So now let's let's get to some of the specific ways in which you conduct this contrapuntal conversation. Um, uh, one of the key uh, ideas in Sayyid Ahmad Khan that you explore at uh, in depth 
is this idea of uh, taklif or right. you know which has a certain notion of moral obligation but then sort of the notion of uh, burden and so on in the south asian context right so tell us a bit about what said ahmed khan does with this notion of taklif and then how you put that into conversation uh with neeber i know this was a massive chapter with a lot going on but maybe <laughs> yeah my, maybe... my 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 the publisher was was like can you please break it into two i was like can't do it you know it's a uh, no, no, I'm, I'm glad I'm, i'm glad you didn't i'm glad you didn't it was it was fantastic but maybe could you give us a sense of the gist of this um, this uh, chapter and what this you do with the cliff yeah. and, and and neeber yeah well the cliff you know the cliff is historically right it's, it's a fic it's a fic concept it's it's a very sort of legalistic concept right it says it prefers to the moral obligation that human beings are put under by god right like the human beings have to it's it's, it's so it's it's a, it's a kind of like a, um it's the it's the mechanism it's the conceptual mechanism by which humans are held accountable basically right so they're under they're under obligation to do right you know so what what sayyid khan does is very interesting because as you know surely like taklif in urdu has a very different meaning usually right like in urdu taklif also just literally means pain right so sayyid ahmed khan does this very interesting thing because sayyid ahmed khan is the first first major writer who does theology in south asia in urdu not in arabic right he's able to use this term and its much wider connotative domain in urdu to make a real interesting intervention right theological intervention so he's able to make taklif not just a kind of moral obligation but but connected with the idea of human limitation and the pain the painfulness or the or the burden of being a human being and of being situated being limited right um in in one's capacity to be able to see and to hear and to experience right so he 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 takes this concept which is a fairly dry you know theological legalistic concept and he turns it into this kind of an ontological claim about the human condition right that human beings are the kind of creature that are limited unlike god right god has a limitless omniscience independence human beings are situated biologically situated physically situated historically situated and they're by definition finite and this finitude like right, this finitude is what the cliff is for for sayyid ahmed khan right that that, that, that finitude is in fact not just the fact of the finitude but sayyid ahmed khan locates the human capacity to reason and the human capacity for freedom precisely in this finitude i think this is sort of the big intervention right which is that sayyid ahmed khan does not locate or does not understand freedom and reason right abstractly he understands it very very uh, uh, particularly as an aspect of human finitude of the cliff right so that freedom is not something i think i used the idea that that freedom is a particular kind of uh, epiphenomenal to the condition of being put under obligation by god right so as it's sort of like a it's counterintuitive right like it's usually you would say hey if you're under pain and obligation you have uh, your freedom is limited right but sayyid ahmed imagines human freedom human reason as precisely the human response right to being put under obligation to being finite right so he takes this particular you know counterintuitive sort of approach to um to to try and locate the capacity to reason and the capacity for freedom in being a finite being now in that sense his particular understanding of taklif is very similar when i was reading it to say that um, to reinhold niebuhr's uh, understanding of sin in in christian theology 
right? In Christian theology, or Reinhold Niebuhr's version of it, he also understands the human capacity for reason as being located in human finitude. And he understands sin, not in an Augustinian sort of sexual, physical way, but rather the sin of one's, of, of, of the, the sin as like the, 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 the finite condition of being human while at the same time being, being able to imagine infinitely, right? So this combination of things, the fi- finitude of the human condition and the human capacity for imagination, right? In a kind of tension with each other that gives rise to the human capacity for reason. So it's so I I thought when I was reading, I mean, I, 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 I'm actually, I've, I've read Niebuhr. Uh, I've been exposed to Niebuhr for a long time, much longer than Sayyid Khan. So once I started reading Sayyid Khan, I was reading into Sayyid Khan, right? Some of what I've already read in Niebuhr, right? So this is also what I mean by reading into, right? So I was, I, I was reading into Sayyid Khan, a particular kind of reading of the Khalif that was very informed by my understanding of Reinhold Niebuhr's idea of sin. Uh, and before we before we get to the next chapter, there is another very interesting thing you do um, in this chapter, which is Sadamat Khan's reading of um, uh, temporality and especially uh, uh, of uh, Jahiliya uh, sort of poetry, but also the Jahiliya time period and what the kind of intervention that Islam marked this notion of time right. that we saw. Uh, that you also then juxtapose with Niebuhr's idea of uh, uh, morality being the flow of time and so on. Right. Uh, tell right. us a bit about that, because it's such an important part of this chapter. I didn't want to miss it. Yeah. So, Sayyidam Khan wrote like an entire history of the Arab people, you know, and it's it's completely orientalist. <laughs> so it's it's not very good. Let me just say, like, you know, he's not a historian, but he he wrote a biography of the Prophet, and the first two chapters are all about talking about you know the the period before the Prophet, the Jahiliya, as as, as it's called. And one of the aspects of Jahiliya that that Sayyidam Khan is very sort of interested in in sort of uh, engaging with is this idea of dahar or or of time, right? The Jahiliya understanding of time, the pre-Islamic understanding of time in the in the Arabian Peninsula, is not just time as a kind of abstract uh, stage on which things are happening, but time as sort of a destroyer of things, right? Time is fate, like in the old Greek sense, right? Like time consumes everything, right? It has no beginning, no end. It's just this constant consuming, overwhelming force, right? That just like devastates everything, right? Um, and with the, the kind of attitude that then that creates in, in the pre-Islamic Arab is, according to Sayyidam Khan, a certain kind of nihilistic assertiveness, right? Like nihilism because time will take everything at some point, right? Like it's, it, so just enjoy, so there's the kind of a nihilistic Epicurean sort of hedonism, right? So just enjoy the wine, enjoy women, enjoy violence and all that stuff. Um, and a kind of assertiveness born of the idea that, well, if there's no if there's no other standard by which you can be judged other than just being consumed by time, then you you should just continuously sort of assert yourself, you know, over others, right? So it's, there's a kind of a nihilist, almost Nietzschean kind of um, aspect to it. And what what um, according to Khan, what Islam does is 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 take that particular combination of of an understanding of time without beginning or end, right? where the only thing that's really relevant is life and the living of life, right? And reconfigure it almost entirely, almost invert it almost entirely, right? By making time um, constrained in the Islamic context of beginnings and ends, right? Like the beginning of time and the end to time. 
And by, by making time into this kind of a, uh, how should we say it? Like by making time um, instead of like an abstract, instead of like a mere consumer of things, but rather a kind of stage on which the human drama can play out. Uh, it fundamentally sort of reconfigures. So, so Khan's idea was that the, the reason why the Quran was revealed to the Arabs is because the pre-Islamic Arabs are the most unlike <laughs> what, what they're, the, 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 they're sort of the worst or the most extreme example of like this notion of uh, uh, assertive hedonism, right? So that the, the particular orient, reorientation of the Arabs is the prime example of how Islam is designed to transform the human condition as such, right? So this is what, the, and this is where I, I sort of, I, again, I, I combined it with Niebuhr's idea of the morality as the flow of time, is that time only flows in the sense that, you know, if events are not just random things that are happening in time, but rather events flow in a particular direction because we have a moral code as human beings, right? Because of morality, time has a kind of meaning other than just the happening of it, other than just consuming of the human condition. The next uh, key theme you explain is that of uh, uh, jihad. And again, there you bring in um, Hannah Arendt and her notions of uh, uh, political action and so on. Uh, what does Sayyid Ahmad Khan, how does Sayyid Ahmad Khan understand this category of jihad? How does it uh, depart from perhaps earlier Muslim understandings? And uh, how is that politically productive? And uh, right. In what ways do you put that into conversation with Arendt? Well, I think one of the things that I've noticed like recently in, in, in well, in academia, but also like in general discussions is that you get this idea that, oh, you know, jihad is, uh, jihad is not really holy war. Jihad is like about internal transformation. And, you know, that's true, but it's also not true. Like jihad has always had many different meanings, as you know, in, you know, within the Muslim uh, context, right? It's always had the meaning Sufis have a different understanding of jihad, you know, state actors have a different understanding of jihad. So jihad is, is a panoramic concept, has lots and lots of different meanings, always been there, always been that way, right? Um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan's particular reading of jihad really has to do with his uh, his uh, so let me, let me put it this way. So of the things that of the things that British introduced in India, right? The legal infrastructure, the you know state infrastructure, science, uh, philosophy, whatever else, right? The one thing that Sayyid Ahmed Khan thought was the most important, right, was um, freedom of the press, right, or the idea that we should have spaces in which we can openly discuss all matters of public interest, right. So what Sayyid Ahmed Khan tried to do was to re reinterpret or like reorient the idea of struggle or jihad, right? A Muslim struggle, specifically Muslim struggle. And reconfigure it and attach it to this idea of ilm, right? Of knowledge, right? That somehow there's a kind of jihad that is oriented towards the production of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and of debate, right? Like debating uh, the public good, right? And so he, he, so it's not so much, I'm saying like that his concept of jihad is somehow better or superior to other concepts of jihad. I mean, I think that's just, that, that, that's nonsense. I mean, like there's all different kinds of, just, it's, like I said, it's a panoramic concept. Lots of people have talked about it in lots of different ways and, and that's fine. But he, but Sayyid Ahmed Khan tried to like, um, um, tried to sort of say, well, okay, well, jihad is extremely important, but let's think about jihad 
in terms of like this, uh, you know, in terms of the, the freedom to debate, right, to debate things. And he th- made that not just as a kind of ethical thing. He, for him, for Sayyid Ahmed Khan, the idea of debating or the idea of, 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 of conversation and of free expression, right, is also an epistemological concept that you can't get to the truth of things, according to him, without these kinds of conversations, right? This is where he gets very close to somebody like uh, Mill, right? Like John Stuart Mill, is that there is a way in which, like, it's not just a good thing, like, politically speaking, to be able to express yourself, right? It's not just a good thing ethically. It's actually attendant to epistemological rigor to, in order to actually sort of, you know, so it, it's almost like a sort of, like a vaguely similar to like the scientific method almost, right? Um, as you know, like Sayyid Ahmed Khan was, was knighted by, by the British Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Uh, and part, part of the reason he was knighted was because he was against uh, political agitation against the British, right? He always said that, you know, that that's a, not a very good use of, uh, you know, the time of Muslims uh, in, in the late 19th century. He was much more interested in in using his time, for example, in uh, forming uh, publications, journals, uh, gazettes, and obviously famously founded uh, the MAO College, which later became the Aligarh University. So those kinds of activities for him were much more attendant to his particular conception of, of what, what jihad should be like in the context of late 19th century India. Right? And, and, and when reading like, you know, some, some of the stuff that he writes about, and I, I think I quote him quite extensively in this chapter, I was very struck by how, in many ways, how Aristotelian this particular concept is, right? Like in some ways, and this makes sense. I mean, the, the Islamic tradition is, is very heavily influenced by, by classical thinkers. But especially Aristotelian in, this, in the way that Hannah Arendt reread Aristotle, right? Which is the idea of politics as a kind of uh, constant conversation about the public good but the common good, the good life, right? is a conversation that is about itself in that sense, right? Like it's not a conversation about something other than itself. The conversation itself is the playing out of politics, right? And, and that to me like was very, very, I mean, it was very sort of uh, almost jarring in a good way when I, when I first started reading Sayyidina Khan and uh, reading into him the stuff that I was learning from Hana Arendt. Um, yeah, that's a good segue into the next uh, uh, chapter in discussion, uh, the, uh, Aristotle, because what you show in the last uh, substantive chapter of the book is these very interesting uh, intimacies or uh, 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 points of convergence between Alistair McIntyre and Sayyidina Khan on questions of wisdom and knowledge and tradition and so on. Right. Um, and of course, Aristotle is very key to that argument. Uh, so tell us a bit about that argument. Uh, uh, you spend a lot of time with McIntyre and then connect him to the question of knowledge and wisdom in Sayyidah Mathan. Um, tell us a bit about the argument of that chapter and uh, w- why this convergence? What 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 is your theory of this convergence? Well, I, think that, I think it really is that there's a way in which I think what McIntyre is saying is that there's an Aristotelian sort of understanding, right, of, uh, uh, you know, means of ends, right? So Aristotle really is a philosopher of ends, right? Ends not in the sense of like the end of things, but like the ends, meaning what is the essence of things, right? Like what is the thing's end? Like what is the, what is the, the, what is the meaning of that thing? What is the meaning of life, right? Life as a story has a meaning, right? Um, and so I think that kind of arc, the, this understanding of virtues, of habituses, of character, um, these are all things that are, according to McIntyre, have been sort of devastated by the, you know, the rise of sort of the liberal conceptions of time, 
liberal conceptions of the human person, uh, you know, hyper-individualism, all that stuff, right? So what McIntyre is, is trying to say is that, listen, you know, we have to sort of, we have to account for a particular conception of the human, of human life and of the meaning of human life, you know, that is rooted in an already pre-existing context, right? Which is the tradition, right? So we, we cannot, so for McIntyre, there's no way to evaluate the meaning of a particular life without the context within which that life uh, happens, so to say. The life world which, which, which grounds sort of the story of that person, right? I think this particular way of thinking about a human person is very, very similar to the way, say, Sayyidina Khan sort of imagines it, right? That there is a way in which, like, the story of the human person in any particular context uh, needs to be told vis-a-vis the tradition within which that person is embedded. Not, again, neither Amakitai nor Khan are saying is that somehow that is the only way you can read a human story, right? That's, that's not the point of the tradition. But the tradition is what makes these stories coherent, right? Um, whereas sort of the liberal conceptions of, of, of the individual uh, as radically sort of, you know, radically sort of um, independent, so to say, vis-a-vis, you know, that person's dignity or that person's uh, uh, narrative coherence um, is, is almost incoherent. To McIntyre, right, and to a certain extent, I think to 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 Khan as well. Um, the the way this chapter, you know, the the idea of knowledge and wisdom, right, is that wisdom is the mechanism, right, by which we can actually accumulate knowledge in a meaningful way, right, not as a kind of a just knowledge for knowledge's sake, which is what uh, the liberal model seems to be seems to be doing for, according to McIntyre, right, like. Uh, for example, like Magna talks about, like all the different spheres of human activity within sort of the modern liberal model, they each seem to operate on this kind of model of like just more accumulation, right? Like, so scientific knowledge, you've heard, I'm sure, you know, people say, well, science for science sakes, you know, we just knowledge for knowledge's sake, right? You just keep accumulating knowledge because you just want more knowledge, right? Same thing applies to the economic models, right? Like what is, what do we say? You know, just make more money, right? Like does money, the accumulation of money is an end in itself, Right. Uh, you can say the same thing about you know consumptive models. So, the, so what Magnet is identifying in the, in the modern condition, the problem is mass mass knowledge accumulation without a kind of coherent wisdom to organize that knowledge, right? Um, and that coherent wisdom is a repository of tradition, right? Without tradition, you can't really have that. You can't really have a coherent sort of model for doing this, right? Um, and this is where I think Sayyidam Khan's concept of Islam comes in, right? For, for Sayyidam Khan, Islam is a name, right, for the, for the organization of human knowledge in all different spheres, right, in such a way as to enhance human flourishing, right? This is what I meant when I, I think I mentioned in the book, like that what, what Sayyidam Khan has in mind with Islam is a kind of a grand humanism, right? It's, it's dehumanism to ground all other humanisms. Right, so for, for for Khan, the loss of Islam is then not just some kind of a provincial loss, according to him. Right? It's not it's not just a loss of a particular kind of quote unquote religion; it's a loss of a certain kind of opportunity, right, for for human flourishing. So that's that, that was the thing that the idea of knowledge and wisdom is something that it seems uh, wisdom is not something that uh, we uh, you know even in modern philosophy like it's not it's, it's not a concept that gets much play anymore. Um, but Ma- I think I thought like it would be good use of of that particular concept, especially the way McIntyre uses the idea of tradition to try and like sort of you know retrieve a little bit of this idea of wisdom. 
before we talk about the epilogue, uh, you know, since the book is on critique, um, let, let me take a step back from the book itself and ask you a possible critique that someone might, you know, uh, might have. And, and I would be very sure. curious how, how you would respond to that or how you would think with that, perhaps, is that, um, you know, what if someone might say that um, as much as... Um, it's very productive what you're doing with Sayyid Ahmad Khan and that you're not reading him in this very typical ways of him being a modernist or, you know, someone who's trying to establish the compatibility of Islam and modernity, but you're trying to show that he has a double critique. On the one hand, he's critical of uh, his co-religionists, but also uh, of uh, the project of uh, colonialism and so on. So you're complicating him, which is really productive. But what about uh, sort of his co-religionists, so to say, the sort of other kinds of actors on the scene, the traditionalists and so on? Um is, is there a way in which perhaps Sayyid Ahmad Khan's depiction of them is being uh, sort of um, taken at uh, face value? of so? I mean, in some words, uh, where is the ambiguity of those actors? Uh, uh, is Sayyid Ahmad Khan an appealing, attractive actor to you uh, because he seems to be um, uh, particularly uh, uh, you know, apt for this kind of a uh, critique of either or politics that you're launching? But is, is there a way in which the ambiguity and perhaps some productive aspects of those other kinds of actors that Sayyid Ahmad Khan was engaged in debates with, right. etc., might be sort of um, left out? Uh, I, would just, I would just be curious how you would respond to that, because that would be, I would imagine that to be sort of uh, oh, a I reaction. Think, yeah, yeah. I think it's a completely fair critique. And, and, and the, the, the only thing I would say is that, yeah, no, obviously, I think uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan is, is in, in many, I mean, a lot of his writing is, is Quite clearly, you know, very. Um, let me let me just say, let me put it this way. Sayyid Khan is 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 clearly not above sort of you know sort of caricatures of like the people that he's debating, just as he's caricatured, right? So it's not so much that Sayyid Khan is somehow you know more uh, reliable uh, as a as a narrator of his particular uh, situation. But I, what I didn't want to do in this particular book was, again, like I said earlier, was was situate situate him too well in his context, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I didn't want to put him in in a in a situation where I'm spending like a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, like you know, exploring or debating his location, um, mm-hmm. discursive location. I wanted to pull him out of that location, right? So I do mention here and there a few people, you know. Uh, in his in his particular time period, like Hali, I think I mentioned, I mentioned Iqbal a little bit later, right? But I but I was I was I I, I didn't really want to explore that particular context too much, right? Because the point of the the point of the exercise is to kind of pull him out of there, right? Mm-hmm. It's pull him out and into like a conversation with with completely random, completely different people, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of like his particular, as you know, I mean, you 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 look at the the same time period, I think, in your work especially, um, you know. If I like, I could, I could, I you know, I could do like a um, like a book. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to, but I could do a book. Um, you know, finding a, like a, a Deobandi person or something, right? At in that time period, and and do the same kind of thing, right? Because each of these people uh, are, have complicated takes on modernity, right? The idea that somehow, like you know, there is even even the ones who. Even what I'm getting at is that even self-professed Muslim, you know, people who are much more saying, even self, even people who are self-professedly anti-Western, right, mm-hmm. 
can be read productively with Westerners, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so I, I, so, so the, the, the fact that I was doing this with Sayyidam Khan um, is, is in some ways quite incidental. Like I didn't, I didn't go out, you know, I, I didn't choose him, uh, uh, you know, for, for the fact of his being sort of, um, um, you know, I mean, he's clearly easier for my purposes, right, than, than doing somebody else, like some of the people that you look at. But if I was better trained in Islamic studies, if I knew more about that particular time period, I think you can do this kind of a critical reading uh, of all, any of these folks with other people in, in, in Europe and elsewhere. Right, right, right. No, I, I, I think that's, that's actually really useful. And um, uh, it really is in some ways a great example of a decolonial exercise in which you're showing that, you know, someone... Uh, uh, a South Asian Muslim thinker can be read alongside these other thinkers who are usually who usually populate the syllabi of uh, right. courses on uh, uh, you know philosophical thought or theories and methods and so on. So, right, exactly. They, they, I mean, someone like Sayyidina Khan is deeply theoretical in his own right, is what oh, he absolutely. showed, which is which is which is incredible, which is really important. Um, just as a quick quick follow up, just for the benefit of people who will write on Sayyidina Khan moving uh, onwards and so on. Clearly, you know, after your book, it's very difficult to categorize him or label him as a modernist which is the which is the sort of default in in, right. in, in western writing what would you recommend uh, what kind of a category would you recommend if any if any should one just call him a, a political theorist or a muslim scholar I, or I, I, yeah I really i mean there, i really don't have a problem with modernist you know i okay. mean I, I just want to redefine what modernism means you know like right. i feel like modernism has gotten a really bad rap Mm-hmm. You know, as some kind of like quaint and old-fashioned. I mean, mm-hmm. I would consider myself a modernist. I think I mentioned in the book, like, right. you know, I, I I go with the idea of modernism is just you know, modernism is the is is people trying to sort of make a home of for themselves in the modern, you right. know, in in, in in modernity, which is like all of these you know various processes. So right. modernism, is, modernism is fine. I think just I, my concern is when mod, modernist versus something, right? Like it's mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. When modernist becomes a, uh, you know, because usually what you get in, in, in a lot of anthologies is modernist and fundamentalists or something right. like that. Right, right. Or liberals versus like uh, yeah. radicals. So, I mean, that, it's like the binary that's the problem, not right. the term itself. So, I mean, I have no problem with modernist as long as it's not in some kind of a, you know, like a binary with, 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 with some, you know, with whatever else is you we usually find right like these I mean, as, as your work shows like i mean it's, some, some of these terms are just really not very useful right. when they're in a particular kind of discursive architecture but you know once you remove them from that architecture you know then i i'm you know personally i'm fine with that right and especially as you show with someone like said Ahmed khan who's deeply steeped in a uh, what one might call a traditionalist uh, uh, training and worldview oh, and networks of scholars. He's, he, that is his world, but that he I can mean, if anything, he's a conservative, yeah. right? He's a conservative. Right. That's it's a much better term for him if you mm-hmm. don't put conservative in that binary again, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's he's the he's conservative in the sense he's a Republican conservative in the small r, small c, right? That's what he is. Like if you really want to read him as a thinker, uh, you know, he's interested in conservation, right? But he's also interested in the Republican ideals, so to say, of like of right. and stuff. So that's but like, but do you see how like you know if I say that, considering the you know the contemporary scholarship on on Sayyidina Khan, there would be like people would head would explode, right? Like we're like, how, what are you talking about? He's not a conservative. Right. You know, right. Right. So I'm saying like just like with any other you know, Western philosopher, we have these particular much more complicated terms to describe them, right? Right. Which you know terms that attend to what their thinking is actually like, not 
the particular disposition that some Western person has towards them, right? Like, right. Like de- defining Sayyidam Khan vis-a-vis dispositionally rather than right. theoretically or philosophically, I think that's the problem, right? Um, and if you can, if, and so, so the terms themselves, I, I feel like are not the problem so much. Right. It's the particular discursive architecture within which these terms are embedded. One other question, and then we'll really get to the epilogue, that I think for many readers will come up, and that's not part of your 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 project, but I think it's, a, a, perhaps you can just uh, uh, speculate a bit on this, is sort of the afterlife of Sayyid Ahmed Khan in the post-colonial moment in, right. in, in, in India and in Pakistan in very different sort of ways. Uh, what's your sense of the sort of uh, legacy and uh, how, I mean, this question often comes up in the context of Iqbal, but I think Sayyid Ahmed Khan right. is equally, if not more interesting in, in this respect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what, what's your sense of his afterlives and how, what are some productive possibilities in both of these contexts of India and Pakistan today in terms of reading? Well, much like Iqbal, right, he, he's one of the few sort of figures that are sort of almost equally revered in some ways, you know, in both India and Pakistan for very different reasons. Like in Pakistan, I remember growing up, always hearing that Sayyid Ahmed Khan was the founder of the idea of Pakistan, right? Like he's like the first one and then we heard all about his, you know, I mean, as, as I'm sure you did too, right? Um, and in India, he's obviously known more for his educational interventions in, you know, from, you know, the Mohammedan Anglo Oriental College, which later became Aligarh University. So there is that particular track. Uh, so he's been sort of appropriated by the nationalist sort of historiographies of, 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 of you know, both countries in ways that are just very, uh, I mean, I would say depressing, you know, because what, what that did is like it converted somebody who was like, a, it would be as if the only way we read Hegel, right, was as a theorist of uh, the state of Germany. You know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, instead of like thinking about like the phenomenology of spirit or like, you know, philosophy of history, we're like, yeah, the German state, that's what Hegel was really writing about, right? So I feel like that's what has happened with the nationalist, uh, you know, appropriations of Sayyidina Khan is like a kind of hollowing out of his uh, intellectual, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, over, which is absolutely astounding. Like, you, you know, the, I have the complete works, right? It's 16 volumes, like like 8,000 pages. Do you see what I mean? Like, this, this is an incredibly productive scholar, incredibly productive thinker, who's rigorous and sophisticated and complex and just brilliant in so many ways. And yet all we hear about it, right, in, 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 in Pakistan and India are these, like, minuscule kind of refrains, these caricatured refrains you know, about, about this person, you know, from both well-wishers and ill-wishers, right? Um, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's really unfortunate, you know, like, I think, like, if people were to engage with his work, um, you know, in a more sort of sophisticated way, in a more complex way, I mean, this book, like I said, I mean, I, this, is, this book is barely scratching the surface, right? Yeah, of, of, like, just the surface of the surface of, 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 of his work, right? Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 I wish, like, you know, if, if, if nothing else, like, if somebody reads this book and they're more interested in reading him again, uh, and getting really diving deep into it. I mean, one of the things that I want to do at some point, perhaps, is is do more of the translation work, right? Like, because something like eighty percent of his work is not even translated in English yet. So, you know, that might be, you know, that might be a project we can, you know, that to work on at some point. Um, you you end uh, the book uh, uh, again in the present, and that's of course a key sort of uh, register of the book that you see throughout. That you're trying to connect a 19th century thinker with these uh, 
uh, really existential questions that have to do with the present. Uh, and you, uh, uh, not, you focus on, or you, you use the example of uh, a contemporary scholar of Islam, Yasser Qadi, in an episode right. to do with him. Tell us a bit about that very moving epilogue, what, what you do in that epilogue. Well, I think, I mean, I know, I know Yasser personally. I mean, I, I haven't, you know, spoken to him many, many years now, but we were in graduate school together. So I, and I know, I know Yasser's politics are very controversial, right? I mean, I'm sure you've, you've followed his particular take on, on, on things as well. He's, he's fairly conservative. He's a member of sort of the Salafia, um, uh, you know. Um, I think what I was trying to get at with, with that vlog was just to show how, um, the inability or the unwillingness to treat Muslims as critics, right? As people who can critically engage with their lives here or elsewhere, um, what that looks like, right? In the contemporary age, right? Like somebody like Yasir Qadi, who in many ways is, you know, he, he might be, you know, theologically and philosophically far more conservative than I would like or you would like or anybody else might like. But somebody who's really trying to be a modern, right? Like he's trying to make a home. He's trying to become at home in this world, right, where he belongs, is being sort of constantly undercut, right, by um, and not just sort of, um, you know, sort of the, the powers that be, but in the very act of being able to speak his own existence into, in, to speak his own existence coherently into the world, into the public sphere, uh, is it becoming impossible for him. Right um, now, the particular piece that that I mentioned, uh, you know, the New York Times piece on him was written, I think, in 2010. So I don't know what's happened in the last nine years with Yasser, but Yasser was just a, a kind of a, you know, like an, he's just a stand in for like literally, you know, millions of Muslims around the world. Right. Including myself. Right. But I, as I mentioned, like, you know, I personally was after 9-11 was like it was a very difficult time. Right. Like just to be able to speak anything. You know, to be able to sort of like verbalize your particular critical take on on what was happening around you, um, and so yeah, so I was just using Yasser as a sort of example, you know, of uh, and like I said, I mean, I started with with Ahmadinejad and ended with Yasser because these are not easy figures, right? I'm not doing Reza Islan or Fareed Zakaria because that's just nonsense. You know, the reason is like to put that thing up like it's just useless, right? Because they're not really doing anything. They're not being critical in their Muslim subjectivities. They're just, you know, I mean, you know what I mean. So, right. so it's really these difficult figures, right? These figures that are complicated, that are not easy to stomach, right? They are the test of whether we can have critical Muslims sort of in the public mm-hmm. sphere, in the global public ministry, right? They are the real test. You know, Reza Islam is not a test. You know, Linda Sarsour, she's a test, right? That's hard. Omar Ilhan, she's a test, right? That, those, so for me, like, those are the, the kinds of figures, right? Um, I think I write in, in the other book, like, that if you look at the way, uh, in the American context especially, look at the way, like, um, uh, black political activism and black uh, sort of critical uh, engagement has shifted, right, over time, right? So we went from, like, say, in the 60s, you had movies like To Serve With Love, you know, and, like, just very sort of anodyne descriptions of, black, oh, blacks are people too, right? To something like like Get Out or Django Unchained, right, which is really sort of giving a space for black critical anger, right, and righteousness, right? So I think, I feel like something like that has to be on offer, 
right, uh, for Muslims in this country and elsewhere, right, especially in the West, obviously. Because without that, you just have this kind of, you know, this continuing cycle of like the, you know, what I call sort of basementization of discourse, where everything goes to the basement. And then, you know, basements are not connected to each other. <laughs> the basements are like, you know, by definition, there's just only one place. Uh, so as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, uh, Khuram, you've sort of alluded to this also, but could you share a bit with our listeners what's the, um, actually you're sort of done with your second book also, but could you say a bit about that and maybe what's the, the future hold in terms of what you're planning on working on? Okay, so so the next project I'm going to work on is is this idea called, uh, it's uh, the tentative title is um, Love as a Political Idea. And I want to do this kind of a, uh, like a, use like a range of scholars in the last 150 years who ground the politics of love in some particular religious understanding, right? So I'm going to look at Iqbal, uh, I'm going to look at Martin Buber, uh, Hannah Arendt again, um, I'm going to look at uh, maybe Fanon, right? Uh, so like just again, doing something similar as to what I was doing here, which is sort of like just explore this idea of love, uh, using sort of Jewish and Hindu, Muslim, different, you know, different sort of varieties of, 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 of folks and to ground the, the, the love as a, as, a, as a political idea, not, you know, as an active political idea. So that's the next project. The book that's finished now is basically, was actually part of this, the same book that I then chopped into two. So um, the book that, that's coming out in October that you've read and reviewed, thank you, um, basically looks at this commensurability thesis that I mentioned in, in Islamist critique, the either or, right? Like the either friend or foe, and just expands that discussion to a book length discussion, right? Like in, in how does that particular either or sort of operate in Western public discourses, right? And so that, so that, so that's, that book is finished, but I'm, 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 I think I'm like sort of done with this particular phase of my scholarship, right? My, my Islam-specific scholarship, I think, is coming to a temporary close, at least. You know, I think I'm going to be moving on to like sort of doing much more sort of comparative work, which is what I've been trained in. Islam as a Critique, Sayyid Ahmad Khan and the Challenge of Modernity by Professor Khuram Hussain, uh, published by Bloomsbury Press in to, uh, 2020. And this was part of the Islam of the Global West uh, series. Uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Khuram, for your time uh, to come on the New Books Network. It's really been a pleasure to have you on. And uh, uh, thank you again for this uh, wonderful and uh, really provocative and important book that I'm sure... No, thank you. Thank you, Sherry. This was really read and debated. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Khuram Hussain about his wonderful new book, Islam as Critique. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies which operates online through the New Books Network. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Uh, take care, stay well, and keep listening to your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies.